If you will, uh, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 18. Psalm 18. And uh, while you're turning there, I just wanted to uh, say a word, because we, we've had a lot more visitors lately, and it's been a while since I've explained why we do some of the things we do here uh, during our, our worship. Why did we just read a passage about Herod being eaten by worms? <laughs> well, one of the things that Scripture instructs us to do is to devote ourselves to the public reading of the Word. So, we have for a while now been making our way through reading whole books of the Bible. We've read through Romans, we've read through Genesis, and so week after week right now, the book we're reading through is the book of Deuteronomy. So we read last week from chapter 20, we read this week from chapter 21. And of course, as we make it a practice of doing that, we're going to come across some passages that are probably unfamiliar with a lot of people and need some explanation. Particularly, the case laws in Israel are laws that most people are wholly unfamiliar with and typically don't understand their purposes. And I'm uh, glad that JR brought this up. I think one of the things that is helpful to remember when it comes to the laws in the Old Testament, particularly those case laws, is that God, again, has designed the nation of Israel, indeed the land of Israel, to be a kind of repetition of the Garden of Eden where there is no sin. But of course, you have sinners living in the land. So you have to atone for the land and make it a sacred space. So that's what a lot of these case laws are typically having to do with, is purifying the land of all sin and evil. When it comes to the other passages, though, like we're, we're reading out of the New Testament, just so that you have this in mind, usually those passages have something to do with the sermon text in the morning. And if you notice with me in Psalm 18, if you look with me for a moment, verse 26 where it says of the Lord that with the crooked He makes Himself seem torturous. right? He, to, to the ways of the wicked, He thwarts their wickedness. He, he brings them into calamity. And that's what we saw in the example of Herod. This is a man who thinks that he's God, who's allowing himself to be worshipped as God, and then immediately... God strikes him down, showing that his wicked ways only result in disaster. So those are just some things that you can keep in mind, right? When we're reading passages of Scripture, our New Testament readings now usually have something to do with the sermon text. Those things being said, we're in Psalm 18 again this morning, and we're picking up where we left off. This is a larger psalm, so we're taking it in chunks. And uh, we're picking up this morning in verse 20, and we're going to read just down to verse 30 uh, for our passage this morning. So Psalm 18, 
Again, uh, beginning in verse 20, this is David writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all His rules were before me, and His statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before Him, and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in His sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you have a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. Well, let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Well, Father, as we have seen, You had worked a great work of salvation on behalf of Your servant, David. You kept Your promises that You made to him long ago, and You delivered him from all of his enemies. And in, even, in an even greater way, God, You delivered David's greater son, Christ, from all of his enemies and You have established His throne forever and ever. And now, through His Word, He rules His people. He rules the church. He instructs us in the ways of righteousness and of wisdom. And so I pray, Lord, that as we hear from His Word this morning, that You would do the same for us. You would indeed instruct us in wisdom. Teach us Your ways and show us ultimately that all who find their refuge in You and in Christ will find You to be a shield for them as well. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, as I said a moment ago, since this is a rather large psalm, it's worth uh, remembering uh, what we looked at last week so that we can continue as we're working through the psalm to understand its, its overall flow and the, the larger purpose uh, for which it was written. Uh, I want to do this real br briefly before we consider the particular passage that we're uh, looking at this morning. And uh, you'll remember from last week that David wrote this psalm in celebration of and in honor of the Lord. Because the Lord, in keeping with His covenant promises that He had made to David, the Lord had saved David from all of His enemies. 
It's as if David now has come through all of these many battles and afflictions that have come against him, and the Lord has given him victory over all of them. And now he takes his seat as the victorious king. He is resting now on his throne. And as he rests, it's as if he's looking back and reflecting on all of the things that God has done for him. And as he does this, he he writes about it. He writes these reflections. He writes this, uh, this victorious reflection in the form of this psalm. And in the first part of the psalm we looked at last week, David, of course, describes some of his afflictions. He describes the fact that it was the power of death itself that had been warring against him. We saw that death was this kind of cosmic enemy whose tentacles reached into the very earth itself and was directing all of David's enemies to assault him. The the cords of death were seeking uh, to ensnare him. But then what did we see? We, We saw that God had come to David's rescue. And God, in the fullness of His majesty and in His glory, fought on behalf of Him. The God who had revealed Himself at Sinai in glory, in thunder, in lightning, in fire. This very God at whose voice the earth shakes comes down and fights for Him and saves Him from all of His enemies. And so again, this this psalm is a victory song in celebration of the Lord who has saved His anointed King. But we also saw that this psalm was, of course, not just about David but that David is speaking prophetically about his offspring, about Christ, who fulfills this very psalm in an even greater way. Again, we read at the end of the psalm that it says of the Lord, great salvation He brings to His King and shows steadfast love to His anointed, to His Messiah, to David and his offspring forever. In other words, what happened to David was not just going to happen in David's own life. This great salvation that God had worked for David would also be a great salvation that is extended most especially to David's offspring forever. Well, of course, as we come to the passage that we're in this morning, the same theme continues. Only here in this section, it's as if the king is reflecting now on the character of God in light of the salvation that he's received. He's meditating on and he's explaining the reasons why God has saved him And as he does, he especially focuses here on the justice of God. God's actions, in other words, are not arbitrary. He doesn't simply dismiss 
right and wrong, and justice and injustice in order to accomplish His will. No, His works. All of His works, including His saving works and His promises, are themselves the outworking of God's own just character. And we can see this idea being explained and expanded upon in the first part of this section. If you look with me in verses 20 to 24, where we see here that the king is rewarded for his righteousness. The king is rewarded for his righteousness. Now, you can see that this section here, verses 20 to 24, forms a a unit by itself. It's what's It's what's called an inclusio. It begins and ends in the same way and forms one whole unit. The king, for example, begins in verse 20, if you look with me there, using the phrases, according to my righteousness and according to the cleanness of my hands. And then the same phrases are found at the end of this section in verse 24. It says there that He is rewarded according to my righteousness and according to the cleanness of my hands. Right? So it's kind of like a sandwich here. right? You've got this section sandwiched uh, together and in the middle there is an elaboration on this point. And the structure tells us what is being emphasized here. What the point is that is being uh, written about. The king, we see, is an innocent man. He has kept his ways pure. He knows the ways of the Lord. He knows God's judgments and statutes. He is in himself, in his own person, what the Israelite king was supposed to be. We read in Deuteronomy 17, for example, all of the requirements for the Israelite king. And one of the requirements that that Israel's kings were supposed to do is that they were to write out a copy of the Mosaic Law of God's Word for themselves. And they were to present this copy of the law to the Levitical priests. And the priests were supposed to read over it and make sure that all of the words had been accurately copied so that the king himself would have an accurate copy of the Word of God. And the king, once he has written down this copy of the Word of God, he was to read in it. He was to meditate on it all the days of his life. And he was to do so so that when He rules in Israel, He would be a reflection of the very will of God on earth. He would keep the statutes of God, uphold the law, and carry them out in the land. And this is what the king has done in Psalm 18. He has kept the Lord's statutes before Him always. He is able to say with confidence in verse 23, I was blameless before the Lord and I kept myself from my guilt. Or I kept myself from sinning. Now, 
David, of course, is the one who wrote these words originally. And there's a very real sense in which he is here speaking of himself. He is saying of himself, I am blameless. I have clean hands. And I think sometimes as Christians, we can hear those words and have a kind of knee-jerk reaction as if there's no sense at all in which a man who isn't Jesus himself can speak of himself as righteous and as holy and blameless. We know that we are sinners. That we are sinners saved by grace. And we know that we have, we have to fight the power of sin every single day. And so to say something like, I am righteous, can oftentimes seem like we're becoming Pharisees. We have self-righteousness. We're exalting ourselves over others. But of course, even the Apostle Paul, who is, mind you, the great Apostle of justification by faith alone. The Apostle who knows that the only way someone can be righteous before God is that they have to trust in Christ, have their sins atoned for by Him, and thus be declared righteous before God. He knows these things. But the Apostle Paul himself could speak of his own life as being righteous. It just depends on the context and what he's talking about in the context. He said to the Thessalonians, for example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, that his conduct towards them was holy, righteous, and blameless. Right? And if we have a knee-jerk reaction, every time we hear those words attributed to someone, we would, we would say, well, what are you doing, Paul? You, 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 you saying you're righteous in yourself? Well, of course not. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying that there was nothing in his life when he is ministering before them that could be reproachable. He's blameless and holy before them. He also goes on later in that very same letter to instruct them, the Thessalonian Christians, in chapter 4. And he tells them that the will of God for them was their sanctification, was their holiness. It's the will of God for you, Thessalonians, that you be and walk in a holy manner. He says that they are to know how to control their own bodies in holiness and in honor. And friends, I think it's worth remembering that as Christians, we have been saved from our sins. We've been saved from them. We've been saved from the penalty of our sins so that we can stand righteous before God. But in the saving mercy of Christ also, we have been saved from the power of sin so that sin will have no more dominion over us. Now we of course should never commit the error of thinking that on this side of glory, 
we will be sinless. But I think we should also be on guard against committing the equally dangerous error of thinking we can never have victory over sin. Or that we can't actually walk in holiness. I think usually when you hear in popular Christian speech and in conversations, Christians are very fond of saying things like, I'm not perfect. And nobody's perfect. But there are not many who are just as quick to say, I am holy. I am a saint. I am walking in a manner worthy of the Gospel. We're supposed to be able to say that because again, we've been freed from the power and bondage of sin. In fact, again, as Paul says, it is God's will for us that we be holy. Now, if that's God's will for us, He expects that of us. He expects us to walk in holiness. And it's interesting that in the, the, that 1 Thessalonians passage where Paul says that we are to control our own bodies, he literally says, take possession of your vessel. Take possession of your body. It's as if prior to Christ, we didn't have possession of our bodies because they were enslaved to the power of sin. But now that we have Christ and have become His slaves and He owns our bodies, we can take possession of them and use our bodies for righteous purposes. Paul says elsewhere in Romans chapter 6, verse 13 to 14, he says there, do not present your members to sin. Do not present your bodies to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. You can be holy, Christian. You can have victory over sin. You can be blameless. God has now given to you the Spirit of God. If you are in Christ, you have His Spirit. Before you knew Christ, you had no Spirit. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were totally in bondage to the power of sin. And even if there was a hypothetical desire to please God, which we know from the Word of God, that's not even there. But even if it was, you would have no ability to carry it out because you were bound by your sin nature. Your flesh. But now that you've been given the Spirit, what does Paul say of Christians? The desires of the Spirit are against the desires of the flesh. 
You can wage war against the flesh. You can hate the powers of sin and fight against it. And by the Word of God, and through prayer, and through the means that God has given to us in the church, you can walk in holiness and be pleasing to Him. We know as well from other places in the New Testament, 1 Timothy, for example, that elders of the church are specifically required to be men who are above reproach. Which means they've got to be walking in a holy manner. But that requirement is not just exclusive to them. It's not as if Paul is saying, you elders, or potential elders, you be men above reproach, and the rest of the church can live reproachably. The elders of the church are supposed to be examples of living a life that honors God. Of living a life that is above reproach. Again, which means you can do it. You have the Spirit. It goes without saying that you're going to stumble and you're going to fall. James tells us as much. But God grants to us repentance. We can turn from that sin and we can live in accordance with the Gospel of Christ. And here in the psalm, David the king, warts and all, because we know he has plenty of warts, David can speak of himself as one who is righteous and that God has rewarded him for his righteousness in delivering him from all his enemies. But of course we would be remiss without the fact that the righteousness of the king David is ultimately pointing us to the one whose righteousness and cleanness of hands far surpassed that of David. It points us to the one who never had a single moment in his life where he stumbled or where he fell, where he had to go to God to receive forgiveness of sins. Here we see ultimately the righteousness of the one person, Jesus Christ. He is the one whom the Apostle Paul says knew no sin. He's the one who was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He is the one who could stand before the Pharisees, proclaim Himself to be God, show Himself to be God in the flesh, and could ask them, which one of you convicts Me of sin? And He could say that confidently because there was no sin at all to be found in Him. He is the King who not only keeps the ways of the Lord, as verse 21 says, or who speaks truth in his heart, as we saw in Psalm 15, verse 2, or who knows the path of life, as Psalm 16, 11 says. No, he is the one who is in himself the way, the truth, and the life. All of it is embodied within His one person. 
And because His hands were clean, and because He was without spot or blemish in any way, because there was not a single dot of guilt within His blood, the Lord rewarded Him. And the reward for His righteousness was victory and vindication over all His enemies. His reward was to be delivered even from the snares of death itself and thereby to receive all authority in heaven and on earth. He has now, because of His righteousness, because of His faithfulness unto death, He has thrown the ancient serpent down who is the accuser of the brothers and the deceiver of the nations. He has cast Him out of heaven itself. And the authority of the kingdom of God has been given to Him. It is His inheritance. He is now ransacking as the spoils of war, the spoils of victory. He's taking whatever He wants from the kingdom that formerly belonged to Satan. And He's snatching every person He wants out of it. He's taking them as His own possession. And when the last trumpet sounds, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Praise God! Praise God that on the basis of the merits of the King Jesus, He has now become the King over all kings. That, friends, is His grand reward. He's righteous even unto death. And now is given to Him all things. Now, in the next section, as we move on from verses 25 to 29, we see here that the king then goes on to teach us the ways of the Lord. He knows the ways of the Lord. He's walked in them. He's, he's seen the majesty of God. He's been delivered from all of His enemies as a great reward. And now, He's teaching us from His own experience, really. It's as if now the king, having received this reward, is now speaking to the world and is teaching sinners like us the ways of God. In verse 25, and down into the first part of verse 26, we find here that there's a, there's a word play that's used that teaches us that God deals favorably to those who are faithful to Him and who follow Him. Verse 25 says this, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. And if you've got an ESV, what our translators here are, are attempting to show us uh, is this wordplay that, that, that's here in the original. It's, it's being used uh, in order to, to, to 
to say that the, the, the very person who is merciful is going to receive mercy from God Himself. There's a similarity of, of words that are being used in this verse. And that's what the, the translators are trying to communicate with us here. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. The CSV does something similar. It says there, with the faithful, you prove yourself faithful. But I think it's worth noting that the words that are actually used here are ultimately related uh, to, to, to the idea of covenant. They're covenantal words that we've, we've seen before. Specifically, the covenantal word chesed, which is often translated as God's covenant faithfulness, or, as we've seen, His steadfast love. Right? This, this is a covenant term that is being used here. So in other words, this merciful person, this is a covenant keeper. Sometimes this very word that we find here is translated just as godly. And again, it's talking about somebody who's walking, who's living in accordance with the covenant of God. He's in covenant with God and he walks in accordance with that covenant. Under the old covenant, this would have been someone, of course, like Moses or or like Joshua or David. These are, these are men who, though not, of course, without sin themselves, they, they trust in the Lord, they're in covenant with the Lord, and they live according to that covenant. Under the new covenant, of course, we could think of people like Paul or Peter or any saint who has believed in Christ. Anyone who is a follower of the Lord and who is in covenant with Him. We live our lives in accordance with the new man that Christ has made us and in accordance with the commands that He's given us Himself and through His apostles. And to these kinds of people, the psalm says, God shows Himself merciful to the covenant-keeping people, to the covenanted people. He shows Himself a covenant-keeping God. And then the same is said of the blameless man. I won't belabor the point here because we've touched on it some already, but of course this is a person who likewise lives according to the Word of God. He does what is right. He doesn't pursue what is evil. He doesn't delight in sin and evil. Uh, Noah, for example, was called a blameless man in his generation. And to such as these, God shows Himself to be a blameless God. Next we find the purified. These are the people who have been cleansed of their sin. They have washed themselves clean. They have repented of their iniquities. And they have turned to God. Isaiah, in fact, uses this same word to speak of God bringing His people out of their captivity where they're then surrounded at the time in their captivity. They were surrounded by idolatry. And he says in Isaiah 52, verse 11, he says, depart, depart. 
go out from there. Like, leave the land of your captivity. Leave the land where there is all this sin and idolatry. Depart and go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves. Make yourself clean. Wash yourself clean. And of course, you wash yourself clean through the atonements that God provides in the sacrificial system under the Old Covenant and ultimately Christ Himself who is the Lamb of God slain for sinners. And to these people, to the purified, it says God shows Himself to be pure. But then, at the end of verse 26, there's this interesting little twist, literally, that occurs at the end. This wordplay that is so far present in 25 to 26 comes to an end, and now different words are used to describe God's acts towards the wicked. It says there, with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. The, the, the crooked here, or the twisted is another way we might put it. These are those who literally twist everything out of its created order. They take the designs of God. They take what is good and righteous and pure and they flip it upside down on its head. In the book of Proverbs, for example, the crooked man has a heart that hates what is good. You're supposed to love what's good. That should be obvious. But the heart of a crooked man takes what is good and says, of that, that's evil. That's wrong. God's ways are despicable. And He flips them upside down and calls what is evil good. We see that kind of thing taking place all over our society. God has made for us a glorious design of something like marriage. And the world is looking at it and saying, that's wrong. That's the wrong use of marriage. That's the wrong use of bodies. Here's how you do it. They take what is good and twist it. It's crookedness. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 14 says that the crooked rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. His speech is also described as crooked. It is His speech that plots murder against the innocent. The innocent are to be protected. The fatherless, the orphan, the widow, the helpless of society are to be defended, are to be protected. And yet the crooked man looks at the vulnerable and says, we can take them. We can take what's theirs. We can take their lives. We see the same thing in our own society 
You think of the most vulnerable people there are. Those children who are in the wombs of their mothers. They're to be protected. And yet our society says of them, they're not even people. You can kill them at will for whatever reason, at whatever time. It's crooked. It's a twisting of the righteous order of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5, idolatrous and immoral Israel who has rebelled against God and accused Him of malice all throughout the days of their wilderness wanderings, they also are described as a crooked and twisted generation. You can think of the things that they saw. They're rescued by the mighty hand of God. They they see the sea split in two. It becomes walls on each side of them as they walk on dry land. And God leads them through a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. He saves them. He does good to them. He feeds them. He gives them drink from the rock. And what do they do? They accuse Him of evil. They say, you've brought us out to kill us. They accuse Him of being a murderous God because they're twisted. It's a crooked generation. The same word also is used here that Peter uses in 2 Peter to describe those who take the inspired Word of God And they twist it to their own destruction. They are the false teachers who are puffed up with pride. And they take Scripture and they make it say the exact opposite of what it is saying. And Peter says as they twist it, they are twisting it ultimately to their own destruction. To these people, the text says, God shows Himself crooked. And this doesn't mean, of course, that He becomes evil, but that to them, He seems evil. Because all of their twisted actions that they believe are going to bring them great rewards. As they're taking advantage of the innocent, as they're plotting the destruction of people, it's always to exalt themselves. They think that their actions are going to result in blessing and life forever. And what does it produce? Calamity and destruction. They think that no one sees their evil and God sees it. They think that no calamity will come upon them and God sends calamity. And even if the wicked do prosper for a time and appear as if they're flourishing, all of their works will be consumed and they will face the fierce judgment of God. One could think about, for example, the mighty king of Assyria. The Assyrian Empire was one of the largest and long-lasting empires of the ancient world. And they spread their dominion through brutal 
conquests. They were known for striking fear into nations because when they conquered them, they would take all of the defeated soldiers, even many of the women and children, and publicly execute them in bloody ways to strike fear in everyone else who would stand in their way. They were mighty. They were strong. They were boastful. They were spreading their kingdom far and wide. And yet when they came to Jerusalem, after destroying virtually every other city in the nation of Judah and laying siege to the last city of Judah, Jerusalem, they came against the God of Jerusalem. And in a single night, God struck down 185,000 of those Assyrian soldiers vanquishing the army and sending them back to Assyria where the king himself would eventually be killed. Their plotting appeared to be winning the day, and yet there was only one sovereign who was in charge, and that was the God of Jerusalem. Or one could think of the crucifixion of Christ. Christ Himself had all of the Jews, even the might of the Roman government against Him. He had the power of death waging war against Him. And at His crucifixion, when He was hung on the tree like the worst of criminals, it appeared as if wicked man in all of his sin had won. It appeared as if the power of death itself would continue to prevail on earth as it had before. And yet on the third day, in accordance with Scripture, God unsheathed His sword and gave the Son a command to rise. And just as the Son had obeyed the Father unto death, so He obeyed the Father yet again rose from the dead and proclaimed His victory. O death, where is your sting? There is no power that death now has over the risen Christ. Yes, it may be the case that the ways of the crooked seem to prosper for a season. But what the King teaches us here is that the ways of the crooked will inevitably result in a crooked end because they place themselves in opposition to a righteous and just God. And this basic lesson is explained further in the following verses. We read in verse 27, For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. God's people are marked not by arrogance and devilish defiance of God, but by humility, by bringing themselves under His Word and seeing in Him and in His Word the path of life. And the fruit that they will receive is eternal life and salvation in the kingdom of God, whereas the fruit that will result from pride will be eternal death. 
will be condemnation and will ultimately be the lake of fire. And again, the king is here speaking from his own experience. He says here, For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. As a meek and as a humble king, he attributes all of his good and all of his victories ultimately to the power of God. And God honors him for it. Just as God will honor all of those who in humility look to him for their own good, for their own life and salvation. Which brings us finally to the last lesson of this section where we find here the king encouraging all those to imitate him. All who hear these words to imitate him. Notice with me again what verse 30 says. This God, his way is perfect or blameless. The word of the Lord proves true. Which is to say, if you test God's word, like fire testing gold, if you bring it through whatever afflictions would seem to expose it as a lie, like the Messiah being killed, or a Christian being a martyred, or a godly man dying from illness, whatever tragedy, whatever darkness, whatever evil you can think of, whatever thing would try the truthfulness of God's Word. When His Word is tried, it proves itself true. If even the death of saints, now because of the resurrection of Christ, is considered conquering and winning and achieving victory in God because of the Gospel, then what evil is there that can cause God's Word and His promises to fail? If He has made promises that all who are in Christ will rise and live forever and will inherit a kingdom of righteousness forever, and even when those same people who receive those promises are killed, and they are called those who have conquered unto death. If death itself cannot thwart the promises of God, then what can cause God's Word to be a lie? It's nothing. There is nothing that can stop His promises. His Word proves true. And then we read, He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. Back in verse 2, the king said that God is His shield. The Lord, he says, is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And we could understand this if it was only referring to the king and the king alone. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the one that covenant promises were made to. But here, 
At the end of this section, we find that the king himself says that the same salvation he has known from the Lord, the same God who has become His own rock and shield, the same promises that are given to Him are extended also to all who like Him find in God their refuge and their rock. He is a shield for all who take refuge in Him. And friends, herein lies one of the most beautiful promises of the Gospel. Which is that when we join ourselves to Christ by faith, we are not only forgiven of our sins. As glorious as that is, God pours out upon His people blessings that go far beyond that. What we are promised as His people is that the same things that are said about Christ, of course excluding His divinity, His divine nature, but the same things that are said about His rule and His reign and His kingdom, these same promises that He has inherited are now promises that are given to every single person in Him. Because they're joined to Him. They're married to Him. The two have become one. So that as Christ has inherited all the kingdoms, so also is it the case that those who are in Him will inherit the nations and rule over them. As He has inherited the whole world, the land of the world as His own, so also is it the case that all who believe in Him are not only forgiven of their sins, but promised an inheritance forever and ever. The promises made to Christ are extended to all who find their refuge in Him. And so friends, that is our call this morning to us all. That God would be our rock. That we would look to Him trust in Him, come to Him, and for all of our days, follow Him in His paths that lead us to everlasting life. Let's go to the Lord and close with prayer. Father, You have indeed prepared for us great and sweet and precious promises. A great kingdom as our inheritance, in the same way that Christ has entered into His inheritance, so also is it the case that all who trust in Him will become heirs together with Him. These are glorious promises that we no doubt do not deserve, but in Your grace and mercy, You have given them to us. And we are thankful for that. We do pray as well, Lord, that all who are here this day upon hearing this Word, would trust themselves in Christ and would find in You their refuge and rock. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.